great. That's a uh, quick introduction. Thanks, David. <laughs> I uh, now Ken, for a little bit of background, served 20 years in the Navy, uh, just retiring uh, July of last year. So first half of the career was an S3B Viking, uh, Naval Flight Officer, flew uh, that for about seven, eight years, and then was a JAG on one assignments. As a, as an aviator, flew a lot of time around the aircraft carrier, and one of the things about <laughs> flying around the aircraft carrier is you have to be a certain weight before you land on the aircraft carrier or the struts and the wheels and the aircraft gets a lot of damage. So we dumped a lot of fuel <laughs> over the Pacific Ocean, Indian Ocean, in accordance with environmental laws and regulations. But you know, part of my penance maybe as a JAG is, is being an environmental attorney and now an environmental scholar. So what I hope to do today is talk a little bit about environmental law, climate change, and security law. And there's sort of three parts of this talk. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't give sort of an environmental law 101. It's not a scary topic. A lot, a lot of opera law people and international law people run away from environmental law. They look at the Clean Air Act and they think, oh my God, what do I do with that? <laughs> or NEPA or these any variety of acronyms. It's a different language than environmental law. My submission to you is actually it's not that hard. I'll give you a three-step process to sort of talk through figuring out how environmental laws apply to a military activity. And this three-step process, I think, could be um, replicated in some form for other militaries of the world, other nations of the world. I'll talk about the United States, but uh, you could apply this three-step process, I think, at some level with other uh, nations. So don't tune out if you're not from the United States, because I think this is a nice framework. Now, let's talk about climate change as a national security threat. It actually is not a new way of framing uh, Climate change is national security threat. It's actually been around for quite some time. In the 1970s, the CIA was looking at this issue. The Navy War College in 1989, 1990 started looking at climate change's impact on the United States Navy. So, though it seems kind of novel and it's been in the news more and more lately, um, I think part of that might be for political reasons. I'm not going to talk about politics at all here in this talk. I'm going to stick, stick to the science, stick to the intelligence, and just stick to sort of what we know, what we don't know. And the last piece is. Such a massive topic of climate change and national security. I said, well, what can I talk about that had a little bit of meat on the bones so it's not so theoretically based? And we'll talk about the Arctic. Arctic's a really interesting area. It's transforming in ways that we are only beginning to understand. And uh, I, I, I'm fascinated by all the issues in the Arctic from an environmental le uh, lens, geopolitical lens, legal lens, you know, conventional law of the sea. So this would be sort of a nice bookend to, Kraska's presentation yesterday of South China Sea. So South China Sea and the Arctic are sort of the two hot topics in Law of the Sea right now, so uh, hopefully that'll be a nice sort of friendly amendment to Kraska's talk. <coughs> um, I just say this, I'm gonna go through some slides relatively quickly, but if anything I say along here, it's gonna be kind of very top level. I'm gonna stay throughout the afternoon to lunchtime, and my email is up there as well, so write that down if you have questions. It's a lot of material to get through in an hour and a half, first class of the day. Uh, but if, you, if something uh, strikes you that you want to talk about, just raise your hand and I'll call on you and we'll, we'll go from there because I'll be going relatively fast. So roadmap, this is it. Overview of environmental law. Don't be afraid of environmental law. Environmental law is your friends. In this scenario, I think actually there needs to be more discussion, maybe more intersection between national security law and environmental law. There needs to be more of an intersection between national security law and administrative law. 
because that often was where the rubber meets the road. Um, they can't be too siloed. It's just too important for them not to be siloed. So environmental law is fascinating to me because it's legal, it's technical, it's policy, it's all of the above that really need to engage with national security law. Let's talk about climate change, the scientific problem, the need of a policy solution. It's not a political problem, it's not a policy problem. It's a scientific intelligence problem first. Think of that as the baseline of every time you think of climate change via national security lens. Then we'll talk about the Arctic. There's many others, but I'll talk about the Arctic today. Um, and what's going on in the Arctic, <coughs> where the impacts of climate change we really fully don't understand, if we're being honest with ourselves. All the reports of sea ice melting in the Arctic have been off the mark. When you see reports today about the Arctic and sea ice melting, you see uh, reports of a ice-free summer in the Arctic, so 2030, 2040, 2050. If I was a betting person, I would go on the earlier side of that, because most of our early reports about the Arctic and sea ice melting have been wrong, and that they've actually occurred earlier than we thought. Okay, that's our, that's our roadmap. So big picture question, I'll pose to the group. Why is it important? Any military in the world, what do you think? I'll call on you. <laughs> cause a lot of environmental damage if we don't. Environmental damage, okay. And who does that impact? Affects operations. Affects operations, you. It phrase alliances. Phrase alliances, I like that. Can you talk more about that? I mean, we say phrase alliances, that's big picture. Um, depending on the sort of political situation for a potential ally or an ally, the existence of environmental damage by, say, U.S. military may make it more difficult for um, that government to cooperate in matters that are, are purely national security matters. Right, so it seems to be it's inextricably linked to respect for the host nation laws, maybe the mission itself. Any other any reasons for, for this? I have a few. Oh, I'm sorry. But, you know. I think it's also related to um, public opinion. Uh -huh. in, um, so, for example, marine biodiversity conservation, mm -hmm. it's also part of the environmental laws. Mm -hmm. Right, so it's a hard law requirement or environmental law. I like that, Fiona. I mean, uh, within the United States, military, you have statutes, you have state laws and regulations, you have DD directives, you have executive orders. It gets pretty complicated pretty quickly. But in the big picture, you're right. I mean, if you're not respecting the host nation's environmental laws if you're leaving an area not environmentally in good shape, then that can undermine the broader mission. And we've seen that. We've seen that time and time again with the toxic legacy of environmental cleanup throughout the world. I'll give you a couple of examples. There's a couple of things I, I think about. I think it upholds the rule of law. If you have one sector of society which is not compliant with the law or regulations, um, when we're talking rule of law, how is that upholding the rule of law? I think that the use point is great. Linked to broader mission goals, right? Civilian control of the military is one of the things that I argue. Environmental law, I'll talk about in the United States, has a very interesting uh, procedure that can bring lawsuits against the United States military. Um, and it protects the environment. One of the things that gets lost in this is oftentimes the people that are most affected by the environment are women, children, elderly, sick, handicapped in a war zone. 
And we're seeing actually that right now in the Iraq region uh, with ISIS, this toxic legacy. We all remember this from 1990. This is Saddam Hussein uh, putting oil fires, uh, a massive oil fire, massive environmental disaster in Kuwait in 1990. His theory was this, this could blind the pilot's eyes. Um, but it was really nihilism in its purest form. It was environmental crime. Um, and so I was just doing some research on Kuwait in 1990. The air quality of Kuwait is still suffering from this 30 years later. Most recently, there's a great Washington Post story that's not getting the attention it deserves, but in ISIS in Mosul. Um, ISIS did something similar with the oil fields. They actually destroyed a sulfur mine in the northern part of Iraq. This is going to be ISIS's toxic legacy in Iraq for generations to come. Okay, so on a positive note, <laughs> uh, it's important to, but it, hopefully that you, you can sort of see sort of the operational impacts of this uh, overseas. U.S. environmental law is where we start because this has the, um, I say, the most complex, most robust system from a comparative legal lens. Uh, as applied to the military, which is the largest military in the world. So we'll start here, but I think the three-step process I'm gonna to talk to you about environmental law can be applied roughly throughout the militaries of the world, regardless of the nation. Does anyone know what this is? Ohio. You know the river? Cuyahoga. Uh, yeah, very good, very good. So this was sort of, the, the United States, for those of you who don't know, in the 50s and 60s, there wasn't really a federal environmental um, law system, a statutory system throughout the 50s and 60s. The Cuyahoga River set on fire as people were going to work that day in outside of Cleveland, Ohio. This was the seventh or eighth time, numerous times that it had gone on fire. This became kind of a trigger moment for the United States. We said, we finally need to do something uh, about sort of having a framework for federal laws over uh, environmental matters. So, actually, at that time, had no visible signs of life. The nation's, the United States' waters were very, very um, unsafe for swimming, about two-thirds. Chesapeake Bay was, was in terrible condition. So the solution was sort of this Clean Water Act, uh, which came about in 1972. And, you know, the Na National Environmental Policy Act, the Clean Air Act, sort of this environmental awakening. Because all the environmental laws at that time were focused on the state. So the state was very ad hoc throughout the federal system of the United States. But the, qu the core question that the military had to struggle with is, well, wait a second. <laughs> the military, the Department of Defense, the Air Force, we've been around for 200 years, and our mission is to operate forces, to fight and win wars, Think of all the national security law mission of the, of the military. How do we um, engage with environmental law? <clears throat> and the answer came about through this. This is sort of the explosion of federal environmental legislation. Um, it's an alphabet soup. Again, it's a, it's a different world. This is all the United States federal environmental legislation. And what's important for this group is how does this domestic law apply to a military Activity. That's the formal, that's the that's the question, right? And the answer is, well, this is the mission of the Navy. So how do you sort of these two worlds, environmental law and national security law, how do they sort of intersect? How do they uh, 
engage. It's the largest bureaucracy in the world, enormous emitter of greenhouse gases. We'll see that later with the climate change context. Uses more oil than Sweden. And facilities-wise, the Department of Defense, as a landowner, real estate owns about as much as the state of Virginia. So it's a whole entire <laughs> major state. And so how do you deal with that? And also the military, to your point, there's a lot of things that could be harmful to the army. So here's a question for you. There's no reason why you should know this answer until today, but you'll all be experts on environmental law today. <laughs> do federal environmental laws apply to the military? Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, NEPA, all these things you hear in the news. Do federal environmental laws apply to the US military? What do we think? Well, if they don't, they should. If they don't, they should. Okay. <laughs> That's a policy matter. Yeah. Okay. Jeannie? I think they apply, but aren't there, to some extent, exceptions for most of the activities the military out? I like that. That's better. Um, they do apply, but there are exemptions. I like that. Um, I think as a general matter, if, if, if you were forced me to give you a yes or no answer to this question, I would say yes. Yes, they do, they do apply to the military. Not only do they apply to the military, but there are some ex exceptions on the national security, but state, local laws the military also has to comply with. This is very unique in American law. Um, and this is the three-step process. The first question is, within an environmental law, is there a waiver of sovereign immunity? Now, waiver of sovereign immunity is kind of a strange concept. It's from the British common law. You can't sue the king. But the United States has adopted this in its, in its jurisprudence. Uh, it essentially says that the government cannot be sued unless Congress has uh, the legislative branch has proactively granted that waiver of sovereign immunity. So most of the major environmental law statutes, that waiver has been granted. That waiver has been granted. Not only has that waiver been granted, excuse me a second, but it applies to federal, state, and local laws as well. We'll talk about that in a second. Sanjeev, do you have a question? Yes, so thank you, sir. Uh, so who is sovereign in your country? For example, in our country, people are considered as sovereign. So the earlier principle you mentioned about the Britishers, so that was in the 18th century or maybe 19th century. Mm -hmm. Today's environmental laws or other laws, they need to follow, mm -hmm. right? And if you are not following, you need to pay, mm -hmm. right? So something is happening. Maybe, is it different in your country? Well, I think the sovereign immunity as a, as a legal doctrine has been, has been <coughs> baked into our jurisprudence even though it's, there's not a king, there's not a, a notion that the king can do no wrong, and there's a lot of discussion about should we even have this doctrine of, of sovereign immunity. But for the most part, a court will look to see if Congress has granted a waiver of sovereign immunity to allow a lawsuit against the government. So according to our Supreme Court, yeah. it has evolved a certain kind of jurisprudence according to that, the human rights Personality and they can be suiting the court. They can be challenged in the 
So we'll can we can sit aside for a second. I, Indian Constitution, they have more proscriptive rights about right to human environment, is my understanding, and that the United States does not. The United States does not have a, a right to human environment embedded in, in our Constitution. So I think that in India, um, you're more you, you can overcome this rebuttable presumption that you cannot sue the government um, by asserting a different sort of constitutional right. But we can talk maybe offline a little bit of that this morning. So this is the first step. Um, only Congress has the power to waive. The waiver must be clear and unambiguous. And this is really important. The Department of Defense is treated as a co-equal federal agency, an agency with an administrative law, that term is critically important, because what is an agency? Sort of a major federal uh, agency, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Defense, Department of Agriculture. So the Department of Defense as a federal actor is treated as a co-equal agency. This, as a baseline matter, there's not, the DOD isn't separate and distinct. And this is really important, and I'll just sort of stop here for a second. This is the waiver that is adopted in numerous federal laws in the United States regarding the Clean Water Act. This falls in the big deal category <laughs> because you have a federal actor, the Department of Defense, which you think of supremacy clause. You think of the sovereign is uh, supreme in our federal system uh, over states. But Congress granted this waiver such that all agencies, to include the Department of Defense, the military organization, must comply with all federal, all state, all interstate, and local requirements. The so what on this is take a military base, again, a federal landowner the size of Virginia, Norfolk Naval Station, has to comply with the Clean Water Act, has to comply with the state water laws, and also has to comply with city laws. So it's almost a reversal of roles and functions within federal environmental law. Does that make sense? It's sort of a simple but powerful, there's no other area of law I know that really has this sort of uh, reverse vertical relationship between uh, the different actors. So that's unique within, I think, American jurisprudence. And the second question, Janine, this is your point, is there a national security exemption? That's your second step in the process. So you find the waiver exemption, and the last is, does the statute have an extraterritorial application? Most environmental laws are focused on private industry, private actors, but the military really cares about this piece because numerous environmental laws actually have an application outside the United States. Does that make sense? So. Uh, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, the National Environmental Policy Act doesn't have an extraterritorial application, but numerous other environmental laws do. And this is why. The United States Navy operates on the high seas, for example. So I apologize for the acronyms. Environmental law is known for so many acronyms. CZMA is the Coastal Zone Management Act. Uh, NEPA is the National Environmental Policy Act, which is sort of the, the core environmental law. Uh, EO is an executive order. Uh, ESA is the Endangered Species Act. It actually applies in the high seas. So the Navy has to respect endangered species on the high seas. And NHPA is the National Historic Preservation Act, which um, requires the military to uh, t 
take into account its impact on national historic properties. There's a unique twist to that um, with this Section 402, which requires uh, the United States agencies to take into account its effect on foreign properties as well, pursuant to the World Heritage Convention. And this was actually used quite uh, creatively by litigants in Japan to stop the movement of a Marine Corps base from Fatenma uh, responding to um, failing to, to take this into account. So this is sort of a kind of a side note, but th the point being is you, as, as, a, as an attorney, as a national security lawyer, you sort of have to know, you know can, is there a waiver and where does that waiver apply to? Okay, and administrative law is sort of a, the nexus how it gets to the court. And, and, the, and the military is sued quite a bit uh, regarding environmental laws. Not all lawsuits are obviously successful, but if the military or the Department of Defense, it's like any agency fails to comply uh, with its own internal regulations, acts in what's called an arbitrary, capricious fashion, they can be subject to lawsuit. And we saw this in a Supreme Court case. This is sort of drive this home, and then I'll stop talking about environmental law when we move on to climate change. In this case, uh, where the Secretary of the Navy was sued by the Nat uh, Natural Resources Defense Council and Environmental Litigant Group uh, in the United States in 2008. And this lawsuit brought pursuant to environmental laws and regular laws actually stopped a United States aircraft carrier strike group from doing training and missions off the coast of Southern California. So shows the power, if you will, of compliance with federal environmental laws uh, in its impact on operations. Ultimately, the Supreme Court, uh, Justice Roberts uh, was new to the bench. He ultimately lifted this injunction which prevented the, the U.S. Navy from uh, engaging in the exercises for not complying with environmental laws. But he also said, you know, there's no blanket. He sort of reaffirmed sort of how he started this. There's not a blanket military exemption. There's not a blank, blanket military deference where you always will defer to the military on, on national security matters. Remember, it's a co-equal federal agency, and you have to uh, comply with environmental laws and regulations as a, as a blanket matter. I'll stop right there. Any questions? I know it's sort of U.S.-centric but it's a lot there about um, United States environmental laws as they apply to the military. Martin, let me, let me just add that obviously the Army has hundreds of installations all over the United States. We get sued far more than the Navy does. Uh, we have thousands of acres of land. We're subject to state laws on the environment. If a red-headed woodpecker shows up and more than more than one in number, we're going to get sued. If the snail darter is, is, is looking bad, we're going to get sued. So we have an entire section in our Office of the Judge Advocate Journal in, in the Pentagon that deals with nothing but environmental law and environmental litigation. We are constantly in court all over the United States. There's never a day that we're not sued for some reason for environmental matters. It's not to say that it's a bad thing. But Mark's point is, from an operational standpoint, environmental law certainly does affect operations, either, even within the continental United States. Thanks, Dave. That's great. And I've been focused sort of on the big picture of the federal statutes and laws. But as David said, the DOD has a direction for everything. And, a, and, a, and the Army has a regulation for just about everything. 
And so that may not be able to bring a lawsuit, uh, but that is a sort of internal environmental guidance that the Army, the Navy, the Air Force will, will comply with. As a funny aside, you, 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 were, you were talking about uh, the woodpecker. When I was flying S3 Vikings in North Island, we had a snowy piper critical habitat on, on the military base, which is the worst thing for the aviators is having a bird strike. But <laughs> on the Endangered Species Act, right next to the, to the airfield, we actually had a wildlife habitat, essentially, for an endangered species bird, which actually shows you <laughs> that, yes, the military, you know, they could have actually requested an exemption, but right there in the military base, you have that. So, so further reading, um, the Stephen Dykus, I think, wrote the best book on national defense and the environment. Um, this Lord review article I wrote in Hawaii looks at environmental law as applies to India and China, um, the United States, the European nations, sort of looking at how it's each domestic law from a comparative legal ends applies to the military. Sort of my first attempt at doing it, it was sort of um, very kind of broad brush, but for, you know, those are um, kind of US centric. I, I can't go into all the different nations, how it applies to the military, but check that out. I'm curious in your comments about that. And then this, the last two are available on SSRN, which you can download if you want, for sleeping material or whatever. <laughs> uh, but Environmental Law and Military Operations is a pretty real, relatively new chapter talking about um, sort of the big picture and federal environmental laws, regulations, as well as IHL and LOAC requirements in an operational environment. And that's available on SSRN for further reading. It's a big topic, environmental law, as it applies to the military. If that was 25 minutes of the overview. Any, any questions? Okay. We'll get into climate change. I, I felt like I had to talk about environmental law initially just to kind of give you that one on one. Yes, NG. Yeah, before starting with the climate change, that is also a bigger area. I would like to know your opinion regarding to the Fukushima incident where the, uh, this disaster was happening. And recently, the government are changing their policies. So we are more focused on the, uh, the renewable energy. So my opinion on nuclear energy writ large, or, or say, I'm sorry, the, the what, what specifically? Uh, the, specifically, the question is like we have the Fukushima incident, the big incident, which has a, uh, a very, uh, a very hazardous incident uh, and has a huge impact on the environment and the people as well. So in this case, whether we should uh, go through with these these policies, we should promote these nuclear policies and, for example, if something happened, what is the role of the state? The role of the state for nuclear, yeah, softball question, right? <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know if I have a strong sort of opinion on, um, on in terms of should, should the United States or a, a nation have a nuclear policy, if I'm understanding your question correctly, then if there's a disaster, what are the remediation? steps that are in place. I mean, I think that the state certainly has accountability. Uh, certainly there's, there are laws in the books that uh, take this into account. Um, but I haven't given, frankly, a lot of thought to the specifics, Angie. I mean, do you have any, what, what are your thoughts? So, uh, one additional thing, for example, this Marshall Island 
So in this case, though this International Court of Justice has not accepted that particular case, but do you think that uh, it should be banned? This the nuclear explosions. Nuclear like, like testing or okay. Um, I, I haven't thought about this uh, all that much. Um, I think that as a baseline, you have to comply with all international and domestic environmental laws, testing treaties, all, all, everything along those lines. I think that restarting any sort of nuclear um, uh, program would be, or for your testing, um, we understand more about its environmental impact than we ever have before. So, I actually, actually, open question I think would be like, would that have to comply with NEPA? It's a federal, that's a major federal action impacting the environment. Um, and so, I'm not even sure if we get through sort of the domestic environmental law process across, across there'd be an exemption requested. Um, but our knowledge of its nuclear testing on the environment is much greater than it was in, say, the 50s and 60s. And so, I would. I don't know if there's a good reason <laughs> to be eager to do this. So, okay. So, how is climate change and national? Yes. Question. Yeah. So, in addition to the environmental statutes, you had the APA up there as well. What are the most common APA actions that are brought in the context of an environment Okay. So, good question. Um, oftentimes, you saw the NRDC case. Um, they would have a citizen supervision, which is baked into the environmental statute. Um, Clean Water Act has that, Clean Air Act has that, so you don't even, even need to use the APA. There's a couple statutes that don't have the citizen supervision, so the kind of the fallback is the APA. NEPA is one of them. It's actually not a citizen supervision within NEPA, nor is the National Historic Preservation Act. So the litigants actually, in the Winter case versus NRDC, they actually had an APA claim, they had a citizen suit claim through the Marine Mineral Protection Act. Um, and, right, I mean, so it's, you know, APA fully applies to the DOT as a federal agency, I think it's your larger point, Hannah, and so that's almost a, that's always there, that's omnipresent throughout every sort of uh, federal action. So you have to, meet that, you know, that 706 standard, that arbitrary capricious standard. Um, but oftentimes the lawsuits I've seen, it kind of the, you, you almost get a little bit of everything. You get an APA claim, a citizen suit claim, and one of those. Are they, are they successful under the APA oftentimes, or do you find that oftentimes they, they're just kind of there because they can't bring action? No, they're, they're successful. They're, they're, they can be quite successful. Um, you know, I don't know if I have any data off the top of my head, but, uh, you know, when you start getting into this area of law, you're, you'll find some, some surprising things. Um, to give one example, um, in Vieques Island, the United States Navy for a long period of time uh, did testing and training and weapons firing off the Vieques Island. Actually, the US Navy was sued as a Clean Water Act violation, as a point source entering the territorial borders of Puerto Rico. And it was successful at some level. And often what happens is, particularly in the Ninth Circuit, which is a little more friendly environmentally to uh, the litigants, um, a ruling will come against the United States government and they'll work out some, maybe some agreement in the process. Um, so it's, it can be quite effective. There's actually, I can talk to you offline about some of um, 
the, the latest and greatest on climate <coughs> litigation. So what do you think about climate change as a national security issue? Some people have thought about this, I know. <laughs> uh, how, how is climate change a national security issue? What are your thoughts on this? Is it a national security issue? Yeah, you. Um, if it happens as some of the more dire predictions are suggesting, it could put a lot of economic and political pressure on coastal states. Right, so coastal states, um, particularly poorer coastal states. Um, when we say states, you mean uh, nations or, yeah, or, yeah. agree. A anything else? Pressure on coastal states, I like that. Yeah, uh, Jeff, and then we'll go to you. I'm oh, sorry. We'll go to you, sorry, go ahead. Resource security, for example. Like water. Water. Yeah. Right. Yemen is running out of water. Is that caused by climate change? You know, is, is sort of a big picture question. We're thinking about that geopolitically. Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, I agree with that. Res resources. Jeff? That was basically what I was going to say. When people get hungry and thirsty, they'll start fighting. Yeah. This notion, this broader notion of, of food security, Georgia? But I was just adding Arctic, too, because it's opening up the Arctic for exploration. The Arctic is is changing before our very eyes. Anything else, Tim? It's it's linked to what the others said, but but population movements as a result of changed climate and food availability. Mm -hmm. Any over here? I like all this. I think that one thread is that it's sort of the reverse, the security threats, right? Um, how's it different from other? So the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act normal environmental laws, how, how is climate change different? What do you think? I know it's morning time, everyone's waking up. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. So causation. So with violations of any of the Clean Air Act or domestic or international legislation by somebody, whereas climate change is more something that we're going to have to deal with rather than potentially something that we can avoid. Yeah, I like that causation piece. The Clean Water Act, if you have a polluter that's putting um, pollution into a river, that's pretty easy. He's doing that or she's doing that. Climate change seems to be all percolating. And the problem of causation makes it an inherently more difficult problem. This is sort of the so what on <laughs> climate change. Uh, the irreversible tipping points out there. The science is rapidly evolving on this issue. Climate change exi exacerbates existing threats. Think of all, all the different scenarios you had throughout the last two weeks. Climate change is sort of in the background of all those. The refugee movement, terrorism, food security, any resource management. Climate change is always in the background. The Earth is a dynamic, changing environment. Um, to your point, I, you know, causation. It makes it a little bit harder to, you know, is this caused by climate change? Or is it accelerated by climate change? What is climate change doing? It's hard to really um, pinpoint where exactly it's occurring. We just know it's occurring. It's truly interdisciplinary. It's complicated. You have law, you have science, you have policy. The best climate change panel is actually the lawyers in the background. 
because you have the scientists explaining it, the policy experts, the astrophysicists, the oceanographers, and the lawyer is sort of on the sidelines, sort of shaping the discussion a little bit. But it's not fundamentally a legal problem. It's a science oceanography uh, problem that has national security implications. Yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say that what um, another area that I think it kind of comes up in is that it becomes really challenging for governments, states, law enforcement, military, to respond to protests, unhappiness in general uh, about climate change. For example, pipeline protests. Mm -hmm. um, we're starting to see in, in Canada, uh, people are very unhappy about certain pipelines that have been recently purchased by the government. Um, and lots of people are saying, we're going to protest the hell out of this. Mm -hmm. and and then you see the headline, oh, you know, environmental protests are on watch lists and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And it just makes more challenging. This is not the same kind of security threat as something like ISIS mm -hmm. or Al-Qaeda. Mm -hmm. um, the balance between lawful protest and threats to infrastructure, I think, are much uh, more finely calibrated. Mm -hmm. And the way to deal with that is just very challenging. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't disagree with anything you said. Thank you for that. Any other questions? <coughs> Computational security. So compelling, complex issues over time. The Center for Naval Analysis has described climate change as a threat accelerant, as a catalyst for change. And when you think of the military context, you know, start the science, but also look at what the intelligence community, the IC community, is saying about climate change. And the report I would suggest you take a look at. It's from 2016. It's the National Intelligence Council estimate on climate change. It's available online. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. Um, of course, the Arctic Ocean is reshaping the operational environment. What level that's caused by climate change uh, becomes very technical very quickly, but the ice is melting in dramatic fashion up there, whether you like it or not. <laughs> and that it has transforming that environment in fundamental ways that we'll, we'll see in our lifetime. I would submit, when you talk about climate change as a national security issue, everyone, I think, needs to read this document. <laughs> this is the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change Assessment for Policymakers. It's about 20 pages. The full uh, fifth assessment report is hundreds and hundreds of technical scientific jargony pages. This is accessible even to a non-scientific guy like myself. It's a great science guide. It's peer-reviewed, validated science. It's probably the best climate science policy 101 that's just the right detail for everyone to kind of get, it, get their hands on, but not get overwhelmed with the statistics and the, the math, <laughs> for lack of a better term. The key thing that fifth assessment report and the sixth assessment report is being worked on now. Um, and I should say that every single assessment, they say climate change, we expect um, some degree of increase in Celsius by the end of the century. That was the first assessment. It's going up. The, the reports have not gotten better. It's been not a, been a good news report. Uh, and I don't think the sixth assessment, as the science gets better and more validated, um, you'll see this language that climate change is caused anthropogenically. That's just a fancy term for humans. Uh, some people say about 97% of that, a 
likelihood that's only to increase in confidence. So the Department of Defense, you know, has this rich, rich culture, right, of planning for the unknown, <laughs> right? And so climate change is the ultimate unknown. So what we see, particularly in the Obama administration, is a series of roadmaps, reports, directives that are addressing climate change sort of head-on, which is very sort of sensible, in my personal opinion. If you don't fully understand the science quite yet, but you know it's changing the operational environment, you want to start planning for what that environment's going to look like. So in the Climate Adaptation Roadmap from 2014, um, poses immediate risks to U.S. national security. When we think of immediate risk to U.S. national security, the short term, we're really thinking of disaster relief, storm surge, sort of extreme weather events. That's sort of the three to five year type uh, immediate risks. Longer term risks are more systemic and um, that's more of the sea level rise and sort of the major earth changes. This is significant because this is from 2016. This is the National Intelligence Council which basically lifted the fifth UNIPCC fifth assessment report, the science guide, lifted that, cut and pasted it, and placed it in an intelligence document. It used, adopt, effectively adopted the IPCC's findings and put it in an intelligence document. This is another source I would commend to you. It's, it's from the intelligence community. It's about 15 pages. I've read it numerous times. I always sort of pick up something different. So the science is there, but also the intelligence is looking at this as well. Again, you can Google this and find it online. And what you see is, you know, think about the follow-on effects. If you have warmer days, more hot days, more heavy precipitation, more droughts, more extreme sea levels, what's that going to affect the national security environment? If the intelligence community is saying this, we need to be prepared for the follow-on effects. So when I frame climate change, yeah, go ahead. Professor, in the 70s and 80s, there was studies done that the Earth was cooling, and that was a big fear about going into you know, an ice age and stuff. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about the differences between that period? I know science has obviously progressed. We have better abilities to study it, but there did seem to be similar temperature changes in the opposite direction. Why is this change different? Yeah, I mean, we can get into sort of a science discussion. I think the fundamental problem which you've highlighted is a term climate change. The climate is always changing, right? The question is causation, and the question is how much is it changing, the pace of its change. I just saw Gina McCarthy, the former EPA administrator, speak about a week or two ago. And she said, every time we talk about climate change, we need to talk about carbon pollution. Because carbon clearly is polluting the atmosphere in a way that is completely validated. And and, and unless you're a flat flat earth person, (laughs) uh, um, it's occurring. So throughout the stages of the millennia, obviously, the earth cools and heats. but uh, I think the fundamental piece is that the air quality and the pollution we're seeing from the carbon 
are at levels we've never seen before, despite <coughs> all the um, heating and cooling throughout the millennium. Of course, the climate's going to keep heating and cooling. But what has not occurred is the level of carbon deposits um, and sort of human impacts to the environment we have seen. So, so I frame climate change through three different lenses. Um, it's kind of a big topic, right? <laughs> climate change, how do you frame it? One is adaptation, sort of. Okay, yeah, Patrick. Well, I'm not a flat earth person, but <laughs> how do you um, comport your position relative to some very professional opinions and studies that the, um, the role of carbon dioxide is very minuscule in terms of affecting climate change? So, I mean, what degree do you? Here's what I think, and just without, because I'm not a scientist, but um, I know, I've read enough science to know that the UN IPCC report states that it's extremely likely that it's caused by human behavior, primarily. Primarily. So. That's heavily disputed by many. I disagree. I disagree. That's that, I don't think that's a fair assessment of the well, current. I think the, the dispute is growing. That's what I'm saying. More I think the politics are growing. I think the politics are growing, and specific, uh, especially in this country. But um, I'll give you an example, and we don't. I don't want to do it like you know, science debate. Unfortunately, oftentimes climate change discusses <laughs> into a, a little bit of political debate. But um, Jim Bredenstein, who is the head of NASA, recently headed. He was very much a climate skeptic. He read the UNIPCBC report. He, the more he's read about sort of the peer-reviewed validated science, um, he has become increasingly a believer in that science. Um, so I don't, I think it's a very small minority opinion, Patrick, that uh, does not believe that um, climate change is anthropogenically Okay, Mark. Uh, yes, the, you mentioned the National Intelligence Council which, uh, incorporated those data of the last slide in the uh, 2016 document about global trends. It's a 400-page document, uh -huh. and uh, it mentions climate change as a major global threat mm -hmm. to be faced by the, uh, on global level mm -hmm. uh, by the intelligence community, by the states at large. Mm -hmm. And then the, the NASA document, Mm -hmm. It's about 700 pages. Mm -hmm. It was an excerpt of the New York Times uh, so a few months ago. Mm -hmm. And it looks like the situation is extremely serious. Mm -hmm. right. And I, I guess, thank you for that. I, I guess what I'll just say is um, the major uh, national security documents that were around during the last seven, eight years, obviously the Trump administration has sort of has not mentioned climate change. Matter. But these uh, initiatives, directives, intelligence council reports have not been rescinded, right, from the Department of Defense. So as far as planning for the future, um, they're still sort of on the books. Um, but I, when I frame climate change, I'll, I'll frame it as three, three lenses. The first lens is adaptation. The second is sort of mitigation. And the third is response. So how do we respond to sort of climate 
induce disasters domestically and internationally. So the example I use is Norfolk, Virginia, which I was involved with some of the sea level rise efforts in Norfolk. Norfolk is the largest Navy base in the world. The sea is rising in Norfolk. You're, um, uh, for, the, for the future, it looks like it'll continue to rise, and the soil is sinking. Then mitigation, sort of, you know, the DOD is an enormous consumer of energy, so reducing greenhouse gas emissions sort of seems to be have to be part of that equation. And related to that is this notion of operational energy. Uh, operational energy essentially is the, the notion that the warfighter in the field needs to be energy nimble, right? If you're tied to fossil fuel lines that can cost lives, that can really be a negative sort of operational impact on your, on your warfighting abilities. Uh, General Mattis famously stated, unleash me from the tether of fuel related to operational energy initiatives. And then you have response related to uh, domestically, internationally. So Norfolk Naval Station is the example I use, the largest naval base in the world. And so there's no sort of easy answers when I worked in Norfolk on climate change issues and sea level rise issues. In fact, it was very difficult even to say climate change uh, because of the politics of climate change. So he says terms like recurrent flooding or sea level rise. Um, I'll say climate change here because I do believe in <laughs> climate change and I do believe that humans are causing it. Um, but, you know, it's got a rich history. It's the largest Navy base in the world. And we have almost a quarter million people in Virginia. So the notion is sort of, you know, what do you do with this base which is facing uh, enormous challenges from sea level rise and recurrent flooding? Um, this is a tidal gauge that's been in Norfolk f since um, the 1930s. Um, clearly, it's, it's the, the tidal gauge, which is right by the aircraft carrier piers, home of the Atlantic Fleet, is, is rising. And this is sort of like the, uh, <clears throat> the amount of flooding we've seen in Norfolk. So the question being is what happens to the bases as an adaptation measure if this trend continues and there's increasing sea level rise, and the infrastructure is very much at risk. You can see for a one, um, one level, one meter sea level rise, which is the dark blue, uh, you can see all the different military bases in Hampton Roads, uh, but they'll be severely impacted. And three meter, three meter sea level rise will be extraordinarily impacted. Um, Norfolk Naval Station is, is there, and it's very flat. Again, the soil is sort of, sort of sinking. So the question is sort of, what do you, how do you deal with this sort of problem? It'd be billions of dollars to move the base to a different part of the world, or a different country. So these are sort of open questions that I don't pretend to have the solution for, but I think these are the questions we need to be asking. You know, how do you safeguard a military base in the face of sea level rise? You know, what is the role of the community? Because most military members live off base. When you think of um, a national security issue, Norfolk Naval Station, uh, you know, the, the ships that are there are often deployed elsewhere to the Mediterranean, to the Persian Gulf. If you can't get to the base, you can't get access to the base, you can't deploy. It's, it's that simple. Um, there's different property and zoning laws. How much money do you need? Um, what's the role of Congress versus the President and all this? I wrote a law review article a little while ago trying to discuss the different overlapping powers. 
And what we see in 2018 is the National Defense Authorization Act, which is going to give an assessment of all the military bases in the United States uh, as it applies to climate change. That's a future document that's coming out, I think by October of 2018. So climate, climate environmental law, people like myself will be all over that document. We're really excited when that comes out to see, see what's there. The second piece as I frame climate change as a national security issue. This is just how I frame it. You can frame it different ways, but it's such a monster <laughs> topic that I, you know, I have three. I have three sort of uh, lenses, which is sort of easy for me to think through. The second piece is mitigation. And when we say mitigation, we're, we're really t talking about uh, reducing sort of greenhouse gases, gases. For those of you who don't know, or maybe you, you all know, especially international lawyers, you have the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. The US is party to this. Um, the Kyoto Protocol, which is the, a treaty amendment to the UNFCC. The U.S. has still remained party to the 1992 convention. Uh, it's a treaty. Um, and the Paris Agreement, which is not a treaty, it's an executive agreement. The United States is in the process of stepping away. So the world obviously is moving out on Paris. It's very process-oriented. What was interesting to me when the Paris Agreement was came, just came out, you know, sort of read through the whole thing, there was no military opt-out provision in the Paris Agreement. Um, there was always discussion of should we, will we exempt the military from greenhouse gas uh, emissions or mitigation, and in Paris, um, we didn't see that. So it's a process-oriented with timetables, um, looking at you know, essentially reporting to, uh, inter to international venues about your, your goals and timetables. What's interesting about the Paris Agreement in the United States is obviously President Trump stepped away from it, but a next president could, could opt back in, right? And so the, the world is going out on board with Paris. Uh, we'll see what happens uh, if the U.S. ever gets back in. Mitigation. So the DOD is one of the largest consumers of energy in the world. And this notion of operational energy in the United States, there's a office, a building, uh, a whole entire world uh, devoted to operational energy, which still is occurring uh, at the Pentagon. So response. That's mitigation in a nutshell very quickly. Response, we have domestic and international and here's what I'll say about this. And again, this comes down to, to, to your point, I'm sorry, your first name, Janine, is about causation. You know, did the Syria crisis, um, was that caused by climate change? I'll say no. Uh, did climate change cause the drought? I would say likely it had a role in causing the drought right before um, the, the political situation sort of started to unravel. From 2006, 2009, Syria saw one of the biggest droughts in human history in that environment. Uh, food security, population movements, uh, emerging refugee crisis instability, and um, that sort of set the environment for some instability. We saw enormous refugees, but we're still dealing with this today. And then the interesting question of international law for scholars out there, <laughs> is this notion of climate refugees, right? So you have non-climate drivers 
um, that contribute to the vulnerability of people. And what do you do with groups of people that are um, being transplanted, that are migrating, that are leaving, uh, because of really effects of climate change? It's facing the poorest countries disproportionately in a tragic way. Um, people estimate about 200 million climate refugees by 2050. The case example I use is, is Bangladesh, which I think is ground zero for a lot of these issues, it's sort of the canary in the coal mine. But also includes Arctic refugees, we'll talk about the Arctic in a bit, where um, oftentimes poorer, uh, more vulnerable Arctic tribes are being forced into lands because of sea, sea ice melting. Yeah, Do you have any idea on how to reverse course on these issues, or is it more of a, not a shot in the dark, but course with science it's you know guesstimate I mean do we have a sense of if we do X you know it will change this or it's kind of you know not really know right I mean it's a huge question <laughs> that a lot of smart people are putting their minds to it I mean I would say like the Paris agreement sort of set up the framework for the mitigation so maybe less reliance upon carbon and greenhouse gas emissions large. There's this whole other world of geoengineering and carbon sequestration, sort of technological solutions to try to reverse some of these trends. Um, there's a lot of issues with that, obviously, to, uh, you know, at high risk, because we've never done it before, right? Specifically the geoengineering. You know, there's all kinds of Elon Musk strategies out there to sort of like reflect a light off of the planet, but um, people are obviously treading that very, <laughs> very lightly. I think the carbon sequestration and the carbon sinks, what I've seen, um, has a fair amount of promise. Um, but that, again, that science and technology is very much evolving. Good question. How do you find solutions to this? Thanks for asking that. It seems kind of doom and gloom, right, at some level. Uh, we'll get through it. So this is Bangladesh. Bangladesh, a country of about 190 million people. Um, it's a very flat country. It's a very poor country, about half. That population lives less than $1.50 a day. So the question is, if sea level rise occurs, if you believe the science, if you believe in the national intelligence estimate, sea level rise will most certainly occur in this part of the world. Then how do you, how do you deal with what will be seen uh, as an enormous crisis? What do you do with um, people who are being dislodged from their home environment? Uh, obviously, that shares borders with um, people in this crowd, I mean, what hap what's the responsibility of that nation, what's the responsibility of the world to, to wrestle with this? So these are sort of open questions, and this is sort of, and I'll talk about the Arctic next, but you know, what are the tr what's the true pace of climate change? We'll see. Um, the future of the Paris Agreement. The future of what's called small island developing states. These are sort of small nations, so small states, which are seeing their land eroded, their sovereignty eroded. What do we do with that issue? What do we, how, do, how do we reconcile? Um, is there any sort of legal framework or legal solution to, to deal with that? What's the response to more affluent nations? This was a core part of the Paris Agreement, sort of this notion that there's, there's common but differentiated responsibilities in the words of the Rio Declaration, where wealthier nations which have a disproportionate amount of uh, contributions to greenhouse gas emissions and then you have developing nations which are uh, poorer and they have more basic methods of, um, you know, of fuel sources. 
and they're trying to enter, become a developing nation, what's the responsibility of the more affluent nations to assist the developing nations? Big questions. Food security. There's some scholars who are starting to posit this question. I think this might be too soon. But is climate change a threat within the meaning of the UN Charter? There's some writing on this uh, that has started to emerge. Shows that highlight the seriousness of the cause. And what does the future hold for the Arctic? And in the last half an hour, I'll talk about the Arctic. Because we get a little bit theoretical here with climate change and adaptation, mitigation, response. But the Arctic we can kind of really sink our teeth into. Any questions on climate change before I talk about the Arctic? All right, let's go high north. This is the Arctic. Okay, so what are the national security issues? Group participation time. The national security issues in the Arctic. We, we heard a couple things. What does? What do you think? saying that. So what happens in the Arctic doesn't necessarily stay in the Arctic. And you mentioned Antarctica, thank you for saying that as well, because an ice sheet the size of Delaware ripped apart about eight months ago, no one saw that coming. Sea level rise will be impacted by what occurs in the North and South Pole. Other, other next traditions. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm Canadian, so Canada has a particular perspective on it's national security yes, yeah. with Thank respect you. to the Arctic. Uh -huh. um, it is an international issue. Canada, the US, Greenland, all those circumpolar uh -huh. countries have to cooperate in that. Uh -huh. From the Canadian perspective, the increase in shipping as it becomes an ice-free right. area to areas that have that Canada claims sovereignty over mm -hmm. potential increases in environmental um, risk as uh, exploitation of natural resources um, becomes more feasible. It's been far too expensive to do, but the <coughs> region is now becoming ice free. Um, maybe it will be worth it to right. try and extract oil from under that. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you said a lot there. Extraction, yeah. the North, <coughs> you sort of imply about the Northwest Passage, the passage which goes through Canada waters. Yeah, you. I'm not going to say this well, but as, <laughs> as the kind of activity that Loretta's talking about is increasing in the Arctic zone, there are a number of um, coastal states whose interests historically have been in some degree of conflict, and geographically their proximity is much closer in the Arctic regions than uh, in, in, in polar latitudes. Okay. Try to sum that up. Uh, I agree with everything you said. Here. Um, other other thoughts. Okay. So who knows what the Arctic states and Arctic coastal states are? Not a quiz, but you know we know, we know Canada's one. What are some What are some other Arctic states? Russia. 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 Okay. What, what, who else? Greenland. Okay, Greenland's owned by Denmark. Denmark. Okay. Norway. Norway. Yes. 
United States, thank you. That's the easy one. We're here we are, Alaska. So those are the Arctic coastal states, and where the and there's all, all there's Arctic states which are not coastal states. When I say coastal states, they have a continental shelf in the Arctic Circle. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, the Arctic states are part of the Arctic Council, and that includes Finland, Iceland, and Sweden. But the core Arctic coastal states are exactly that. Denmark via Greenland, Russia, United States, Norway, and Canada. It's been given a little attention for most of human history due to permanent ice. Of course, the 15th century, you all remember from high school, the elusive Northwest Passage. That's becoming a reality, as my Canadian friends can probably tell. Um, a thousand passenger cruise ship traversed the Northwest Passage um, just last September. I think that was the second time in modern human history. You have to just say that a few times before you realize it's import. In August, September timeline, it's almost become a little bit of a game of what size ship is going to pass through the Northwest Passage this year based upon the sea ice melting. Home to approximately four million people, which is different from Antarctica, which is more of a hard law treaty system. It's sort of a landmass without a sovereign. There's no one that lives permanently in Antarctica. There's scientific stations, um, but not permanent. It was a Cold War hotspot, the Arctic. We all remember Hunt for Red October, that bad Navy movie from the 80s, 1980s. Um, and it's really the most unexplored maritime domain in the world with an enormous oil and natural gas resource. But we start with some maps. So I think in the Arctic, it's really important to understand some maps in the, in the region. And I like this map, because the highlights really Russia's role in the Arctic. You have here the Lomonosov Ridge, which is the continental shelf that falls between Russia, Greenland, and Norway that has become, that basically intersects with the North Pole. There are currently two submissions to the Commission on the limitation of the continental shelf from Denmark and Russia on their claim to that area. And you have uh, Canada, obviously Norway. Uh, Iceland does not really have a continental shelf in the Arctic, although it is above the Arctic Circle. When you think of the Arctic, I always think of an orange. Just think of an orange where the top stem is a, is a North Pole, and then you have these five nations, Denmark, Russia, United States, Norway, Canada, all sort of converging at one. We know from Professor Kraske yesterday that the exclusive economic zones Fairly, you know, well-defined, 200 nautical miles. What's not necessarily well-defined is the continental shelf, which slopes off. It becomes a very, very legal, uh, very scientific, technical question about who, who owns what continental um, shelf. I think of these numbers: eight, five, four, one. I think the Arctic. Um, eight is the sort of the five Arctic coastal states plus Finland, Iceland, and Sweden. It's sort of a closed group, right? You have uh, near-Arctic states, like China will say they're a near-Arctic state, but they don't have a law of the sea claim. They don't have um, an EEZ in the Arctic Ocean. That's different from, say, Antarctica, where you have the Antarctic Treaty System, which has 45 or so plus members. So it's a much wider group of interested nations in Antarctica. Number five is obviously the Arctic coastal states. And the number four is important for a few reasons. One, I would submit, is because 
four of those nations are NATO members, right? Every Arctic coastal state, with the exception of Russia, is a member of NATO. So there's an, obviously a defense agreement on Article 5 for collective self-defense when people talk about the militarization of the Arctic. Four million people live in the Arctic. And also, four of the five Arctic coastal states are parties to the UN Convention on Law of the Sea, with one notable exception. That's significant because it's unclear whether the United States can submit a claim off the coast of Alaska to the Commission on the Limitations of the Continental Shelf. Right now, the United States has not submitted a claim for that oil and gas extraction from that area off Alaska, but every other Arctic coastal state has. Um, there's some open legal question about even if the United States can do that, but I think that it's unclear, the best I could say, it's a legal matter whether or not they even can. Russia is about half of the Arctic region. Oh, number one. Number one is Greenland. Number one is Greenland. Greenland's fascinating. Read about Greenland. <laughs> Read about Greenland, I swear to God. Uh, Greenland's melting. Greenland is melting. There's about 60,000 people that live in Greenland it is starting to cause some domestic tension with its relationship with Denmark. Many Greenland uh, personnel or citizens that live on Greenland, they want, they view this as an economic boom with minerals and, and, and uh, natural resources that are being exposed. It's about 5,000 Chinese people living in Greenland right now they are assisting them with that effort. And so there's almost a tension between Greenland and Denmark which is starting to emerge. It's a great article called Greenland is Melting in the Yorker, which I would submit to you, is fascinating. People have submitted or suggested somewhat provocatively, I'm not, I'm not sure if I go this far, that Greenland could be the first nation born for climate change. But it's a fascinating year. Russia is more than half of it, and the key really is the Lomonosov Ridge, which is the North Pole. And Greenland's future, I think, is a really interesting question. Of course, the United States Air Force has a base in Greenland, and Denmark uh, you know, is a NATO ally. This is what's happening with the sea ice. And what you see is that while Greenland's melting, a lot of the sea ice melting is here, between Russia and Alaska. Because of the nature of, as I understand it, <laughs> again, I'm not a PhD scientist, but this thing called the albedo effect, um, a feedback mechanism where the quicker the ice melts, the more the water warms, the quicker the ice melts, and it kind of feeds on each other. And so the climate change impacts as a broad picture, as a big matter, as a general matter, its effects are twice as great in the Arctic region because of this albedo effect, this feedback effect. Here's another picture of the ice seal, sea ice melting. Among, along Russia and oftentimes between Alaska and Russia. And here is, this, this map is up here for the purposes of the shipping routes. The Northern Sea Route does not get as much attention as our friendly Canadian uh, Northwest Passage going through here. Um, but the Northern Sea Route and the Northwest Passage both collectively, or rather both independently, reduce the travel time from Asia to North America by 1,500 to 2,000 miles, so it's an enormous time saver 
five to seven days, you can make that travel successfully. So defining Arctic is hard. The legal governance and mechanisms, you have the Arctic Council, and then you have, it's really kind of a soft law legal regime, but its work has been pretty uh, effective for what it has done. It's been around for about 20 years. Is anyone familiar with the Arctic Council and its workings? Probably Canada is roughly familiar with, with it. Um, UN Convention Law of the Sea is sort of the roadmap. Um, and then contrast this to the Antarctic Treaty System, which is kind of a hard law legal regime, which prevents any sort of military activities, is sort of establishes the one landmass in the world that does not have a sovereign. That's been kind of a remarkable statutory success story from the 1950s. The South Pole is in pretty good shape as a legal matter. The Arctic is sort of uh, evolving as a legal matter. You know, the United States military uh, issued an Arctic strategy, I think for the first time, or maybe, yeah, go ahead. Did the Arctic Council have any comment on the, what I consider sort of a humorous um, act by Russia to supplant the Russian flag in the North Pole, make yeah. a claim? That's probably a really awkward Arctic Council meeting. <laughs> because, you know, Russia, Patrick, in all fairness, Russia's been a pretty good partner in, in the, amongst the Arctic Council. And the Arctic Council has signed binding legal agreements related to search and rescue, related to marine pollution, and governance sort of coming together. It's sort of a one area that doesn't get a lot of attention. But in 2007, you're exactly right, Russia did plant a flag on the North Pole. I think a lot of serious diplomats sort of dismissed that, saying this is not the 12th century, we don't do things like that. But again, that was probably a really awkward Arctic Council meeting when Russia showed up that, that day. Um, yeah, go ahead. For the Russia, that uh, it is a main, it is mentioned in the 2015 maritime security strategy also about uh, it is like the major area of operations for naval. And that's where was that? That was maritime uh, strategy. They released officially on 2015. Okay, that was India or not India, Russia. That was I'm sorry. A Russian document. Oh, all okay, right. Okay, yeah, I am vaguely familiar with that. Yes. Um, in fact, Russia has called NATO the biggest threat to Arctic security. So when you think of UN Convention on Law of the Sea, um, the key thing is this, this term natural prolongation. That's kind of where all the good stuff is. That's where the, the disputes are. Right now, energy prices are sort of stable, they're not super high, so there hasn't been sort of this wild west rush for Arctic resources like some people thought. But while the energy prices have sort of stabilized and kept relatively low, um, the sea ice continues to melt. So the fear is that once oil prices comes back or once sort of the natural resources prices increase, then there could be more of an interest in exploiting the resources in the Arctic. But the continental shelf is sort of where the work of the law of the sea really comes into place as they sort of give a recommendation of which nation uh, has a continental shelf and what's outer limits. So reshaping the Arctic, um, and I'm about 15 minutes left, I want to leave a few minutes for questions. But again, the feedback mechanism, the Northwest Passage, the Northern Sea Route, um, China has declared itself a, a near Arctic nation. There was an awkward um, moment, I think, last, last fall where I think a Chinese vessel navigated the Northwest Passage and then declared a new trade route, and it's, uh, I think, in its public governmental statement. So that was sort of came out of the blue. 
Um, and so, real quick, I think that looking ahead for the Arctic, I think there's sort of five factors that'll have an outside role, outsized role to sort of keep your eye on. Um, the first is the, 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 the fundamental question is the Arctic Council, which is a collaborative, soft law, there's no Arctic Treaty system, will that be up to the challenges posed by the melting sea ice? So you have the continental, you have the coastal states, you have the Arctic states, and then you have sort of the non-Arctic states, right? It's sort of a closed group, the Arctic Council. China is in a permanent observer status, but they can't serve as chairman, they can't set, set the agenda. They're sort of a little bit on uh, the back seats of the table. And the Keeley's heel, potentially, of uh, the Arctic Council is that it specifically exempts matters of military security. So any sort of military security matters cannot be addressed as part of Arctic Council deliberations. That's pursuant to the Ottawa Declaration, which established the Arctic Council. The Arctic Council established sort of humbly as sort of an environmental protection regime in the 1980s. Mikhail Gorbachev first sort of proposed nations getting together to talk about the Arctic. Very, very, very kind of visionary um, statement, frankly, uh, when, he, when he said that. And so it's sort of seen as an environmental collaborative uh, system. And that's where a lot of their focus has been but it exempts matters of military security, so it has to be done on a bilateral basis. Grew out of the Cold War, consensus-driven, and there's a rotating chairmanship every two years. The United States, which was just the chair of the Arctic Council, now, is, now it's Finland. The second, I think, factor is this notion of UN Convention on Law of the Sea, is that oh, up to the challenge. So you look at the Arctic Council, if there's sort of an Achilles heel, it's that, um, the matters of military security cannot be addressed. So it's sort of, it can get 95% of the issues, but maybe the core uh, military security issues in the Arctic, it can't really address. The Kiwi's Hill, maybe for UN Convention on Law of the Sea, is that one nation of the Arctic states is not party to UN Convention on Law of the Sea. And the Arctic Council has consistently stated that uh, UN Convention on Law of the Sea is the pa legal path forward for Arctic legal claims and Arctic legal architecture. And so how can that, can that be worked out without one uh, nation not being a member? So it's unclassed adequate. Um, obviously, the United States views UN Convention on the Sea as customary international law and its core navigational provisions. Um, but the continental shelf claim, I think if there's any sort of dispute, then that is an uncertain area, an Arctic treaty. I think what the Arctic Council has done has been kind of a nice example of sort of global environmental law where sort of nations come together and they sort of organically agree there's a, there's a system, there's a process in place for collaboration, for discussion, and they find areas consensus and, and collaboration. What I haven't said is that the Arctic is a very, very harsh environment. Just operating in the Arctic Ocean is very harsh. If there's any kind of environmental disaster, um, an oil spill, Think of the Exxon Valdez, which wasn't even uh, that far up high north, then uh, you need other nations to help you out. It's a very austere, strict environment. So the Arctic Council sort of recognizes that as there's increase in shipping. And this is a declaration from 2008 that reaffirmed UNCLOS as sort of the legal architecture, which sort of put aside for the time being a discussion of Arctic Treaty. It's inherently more difficult to have an Arctic treaty because it's, it's, a, 
it's an ocean surrounded by land, unlike Antarctica, which is a land surrounded by ocean, right? So it's, I know it sounds kind of simple, but you know, how do you have an Arctic Treaty for really a, a maritime-based uh, area that would have four million people live on the land? The third, I would say, is what are Russia's ambitions in the Arctic? We saw this from 2007. Um, the Russia is building infrastructure in the Arctic in ways that um, the United States and other nations are not. Uh, Russia has approximately 40 icebreakers, like four or five are nuclear powered. Um, and Russia, I think that document, Ramadan, they've actually mentioned that NATO is the greatest threat to national security. And I think to your point, um, uh, Patrick, is that we, we do have the Arctic Council. Russia's been a nice partner of the Arctic Council, but you also see sort of you know, other things going on, like the planting of the flag, the um, more of a robust military presence with some bases in the, in the, in the Arctic. Of course, energy prices. Right now, sort of, the energy prices have been sort of low. Um, so that's been this Wild West rush has not occurred. Um, and then this is, this is something I'm really interested in. And because I, I, I try to read all I can <laughs> about the science, about what's occurring in the Arctic, the predictions. I do the best I can as a non-lawyer PhD, just lawyer. And I, I, I get the sense that we don't fully understand the pace of climate change in, in the Arctic. I only say that because most of the predictions about sea ice melting have been off the mark. They've occurred um, quicker than people thought they would occur. And so right now, looking at projections for an ice-free Arctic summer, you see 2030, 2050, some later. Again, my, my sort of intuition is that it's, it's kind of come sooner rather than, than later. Um, there's this notion in science, again, not a PhD, but I think we have to engage with science a little bit, of stationarity. And that's that natural systems sort of fluctuate with an unchanging envelope of variability. So in water management and environmental water management, there's a very provocative paper issued a couple years back saying stationarity, this notion that natural systems fluctuate uh, in an unchanging environment, Stationary is dead because with the impacts of climate change and the impacts uh, and its follow-on effects, we don't really know what that unchanging envelope of variability is. So it's a two-page article in Science Magazine it's called Stationarity is Dead. And sometimes I wonder, is stationary dead in the Arctic with the impacts of climate change? I don't know. Uh, Arctic and national security. Um, Again, it's outside the Arctic Council's mandate. Um, this roadmap the Navy has. The United States Navy has just uh, two or three icebreakers, really two are operational. Um, one's a scientific vessel, one's more of a fully operational vessel. We don't have the capacity, we being the United States, I don't believe to really fully operate effectively in the Arctic right now. There's additional resources to purchase new icebreakers. Uh, that's critical just for protection of maritime shipping and getting access to any sort of um, emergency that occurs up there. That's the Healy. Uh, this is Mr. Obama talking about climate change. I don't want to, I was hesitant to put a, pol a politician up here, uh, but uh, I think that uh, if the scientists are right, I think Obama's right. And I have a few minutes left. This is Earthrise. I love this photo. <laughs> 
and this is some further reading. Um, for those who were sort of maybe somewhat, I haven't convinced you that climate change is an insecure issue. Um, that's okay. <laughs> I would say look at the climate and security website. Um, it's on that website. It's on that, uh, that link is right there. They have a timeline where they track all the open source intelligence, scientific, policy, legal documents dating back from the 70s of addressing climate change as a national security issue. I can never do that justice in this hour and a half class, but take a look at that. Take a look at that. And um, I think it's pretty compelling. Um, this article I wrote in Cardozo a couple of years ago about looking at what's the president's authority if climate change is indeed a national security threat, which I believe we have to start wrestling with that idea. What is the president's authority to combat it, right? And then just two weeks ago, a person by the name of Bishop Garrison came out with this uh, law review article uh, titled The President's Obligation to Combat Climate Change. Sort of looked at the authority, and Garrison looked at sort of the obligation. And then the Center for Naval Analysis, which is sort of like a Navy RAND, they have numerous studies talking about this issue. The Center for Naval Analysis actually coined the term uh, climate change as a threat accelerant, as a, as a catalyst for change. And uh, their reporting and their, and their information out there is really outstanding. That's me. That's my email. I guess i got four minutes left or so, so I'm happy to take any questions. Yeah.